Hi, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion, in some cases, the devotion, the devotion of all devotions. At this point in our text, we've arrived at the very death of Jesus on the cross. For months now, we've been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, and it has led to this critical moment. This is the death of Jesus. This is where the Gospel is afforded. This is where atonement is purchased. This is Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, the rocks were split, the tombs also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. This is the death of Jesus according to the Gospel of Matthew. It's verses 45 through 56 of chapter 27. But there's another chapter in this book. So it goes from noon until three in the afternoon, and Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Iyahi, Iyahi, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That's according to the, to the CSB. And here, Jesus has just quoted Psalm 22, verse 1. But you've got to see more in Psalm 22 to fully appreciate the significance of what Jesus just fulfilled prophetically. The Psalms are songs, lyrics given to us by God to sing to Him. This is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? So this was originally given uh, for the choir director according to a melody called The Deer of the Dawn. Uh, it's a psalm written by David. David would go through sufferings in his life. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he would reflect on these, drawing upon his days as a shepherd, drawing upon the seasons in which he would flee to En Gedi, running from Saul, the first king of Israel, who was trying to kill him, or even from his own son, Absalom. And while he was suffering, while he was alone, not always totally alone, sometimes his mighty men were with him, but while he was feeling the rejection, he would call out to God and express it in these Psalms. But while he was doing that, he wasn't just writing about himself. He was foreshadowing Jesus at the cross. The very words from Jesus' mouth came from Psalm 22, verse 1. David, whether he wrote this in, in Gedi or wherever he was when he wrote it, was writing the words that would come from the Savior's mouth. Here's verses 7 and 8 from Psalm 22. 
Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. See, Jesus was acquainted with suffering, as we'll see in Isaiah in the final, the, the final 10 chapters. David was writing about his own sense of rejection and humiliation, his own public shaming. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. But he had no idea the huge significance. He had no idea that what he was writing about, the shame he felt, as he articulated it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was foreshadowing and prophesying what was to come. Psalms is an Old Testament book. There are 150 of them, and they were sung by Israelites. But they are more, they are more befitting modern New Testament worship than they did Old Testament worship because they find their fulfillment in this moment as Christ dies on the cross. There are numerous Psalms that wouldn't make sense and don't make sense to numerous Jewish believers. For example, when we get to the book of Isaiah, you'll see ways and we'll kind of put on, we'll sort of put on Jewish glasses and read them through a Jewish lens. And you can see how like, if you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, you have no idea what to make of Isaiah. You have no concept of the full extent to which you can fully appreciate Psalm 22, for example. He relies on the Lord, let him save him. That's Psalm 22 verse 8. Isn't that also the words from the crowd? He's calling for Elijah. See if Elijah comes to save him. Those are verses 47 and 49, respectively. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. David is articulating the jeers of the crowd as they mocked David. But he's also prophesying the mockers at the foot of the cross. Here's verses 14 through 18 of Psalm 22. I am poured out like water. Okay, you can't, you can't put it back in the cup. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember the drink that was offered to him? You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. Within Hebrew culture, dogs are particularly despicable. That's why Mephibosheth, when he goes before David in 2 Samuel uh, 9, refers to himself as a dead dog. He has the lowest imaginable view of himself. Dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. And by the way, those weren't like street ruffians. It was Pontius Pilate, head of the garrison of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world. It was the governor. It was the chief priests. It was Caiaphas and Annas, the high priestly family. They were the evildoers who, who closed in on him. They pierced my hands and my feet. David wrote this in Psalm 22. Crucifixion would not be invented for another 300 years. See what I mean about the, the prophetic significance of the Psalms that only make sense through Jesus? I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. We just saw that. We just saw that uh, a, couple of, uh, a couple of devotions ago and it was prophesied in Psalm 22, 18. So they offer him something to drink. This is also a fulfillment of prophecy. You see John's gospel. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Okay, that's, Matthew 27, verse 50. That is, in Matthew's gospel, the moment that Christ died. Now, 1 Peter 3 gives insight onto what happened next with Jesus. 
But here in verse 52, something crazy happened. You're like, Jesse, I wonder if you're going to go back and talk about dead people walking around. Verse 52, the tombs also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is something that we see throughout the New Testament as a tasteful way to refer to death. And it's a proper way to refer to death for saints, especially for believers, especially because death is not eternal. Rocks were split. The earth quaked. Like God is sovereign over all of this. He was sovereign over the stone jars that held the water which was turned to wine at his first miracle. And he's sovereign over these stones that are split. Uh, it's believed that there was a solar eclipse that took place at this moment. Immediately, uh, sorry, uh, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. That's verse 45. Uh, in the Bethlehem Star documentary, um, a, a lawyer who just studied this and used software that replicates the movement of the stars over the sky from given perspectives throughout, uh, throughout the, the, the earth, finds that a solar eclipse took place on April 3rd. Um, and uh, at first he didn't see it because he forgot that the Gregorian calendar has no year zero. It just starts with one. That's why, uh, sorry, uh, Prince fans, but we celebrated the millennium uh, in the wrong year. <laughs> it was not from 1999 to 2000. It was actually from the year 2000 to the year 2001 that we officially had gone 2000 years since the birth of Jesus. Uh, but, you know, whatever, not to be pedantic. The point is that he believes that there was a solar eclipse which caused this darkness. If he's right, and biblical cred credibility doesn't hinge upon this, and he's, uh, Larson, the, the author, is, is clear in that, it's just possible, if that's the case, God knew that the movement of the celestial bodies in the sky from creating the Bethlehem star, which was the main subject of his study, to this solar eclipse, if he's right, that means that the sovereign act of creation speaking hundreds of billions of galaxies into existence, setting them in motion, was sovereignly timed for the death of Jesus from noon to three on what we call April 3rd um, of the year, I believe, AD 33. So as this happens, something else takes place that's significant. The curtain of the sanctuary is torn. That it is torn from top to bottom is included in the text, listed specifically in verse 51. And it's done so to show us that God is the one who did it. This curtain was there according to the original instructions given by God to Solomon in the construction of the original temple. We studied Nehemiah in our study in our series, The Revival Project. And we see that, uh, you know, that was a rebuilding of the temple. And then, you know, it continues as well. But it was never restored to its full, its former glory. That curtain was to separate the presence of God from outside, from, from mankind. That it was torn means now we are the temple. The Spirit of God resided within the temple of Jerusalem. In the New Testament, the Spirit of God resides here within believers. The tearing of the curtain was done from the top to bottom to show that nobody, that curtain was incredibly thick anyway. It was massive anyway. It would have taken an immense amount of force to tear it from the bottom to the top, but it showed that God is the one who tore it. There was nothing about an earthquake that would have caused this. This was God's act. The tombs were also open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, okay? 
enter the holy city and appeared to many. So the dead people walking around, according to verse 53, says it took place after his resurrection. So that's actually three days later, but it was to prove the significance of what was taking place around the death of Jesus. I was asked by, um, man, who was it? Was it Raymond Rowland? Was it Jake Bange? It was a, one, of the, one of the men of our church once asked me, like, what happened to those people? <laughs> you know, that they would resurrect and appear to others. Um, what happens to them? Do they just go back to their tombs? I believe so. I don't think they're immortal. They'd be around today. You know, uh, this was to point to the significance and verify the resurrection of Jesus. Their resurrections were made possible by Jesus's resurrection. That's the actual purpose of the miracle. Because of Christ's resurrection, we resurrect too. Martha was correct standing by the tomb of Lazarus, believing that her brother would be resurrected. She was absolutely right. Because of Christ's resurrection, death is not the final word on us. Death, Acts would say, could not contain Jesus. It could not maintain his hold on my Jesus. This was the death of Christ, but it's not the end. And because of his resurrection, other people can be resurrected too. That's the purpose of these saints being resurrected, leaving their tombs and appearing to people. Notice that it's saints who are resurrected here. Uh, it's one of the first times we see this word in, in the New Testament. This is really the official beginning of the New Testament in a way. Really, the resurrection is, but that's when this, these people resurrected. The beginning of the New Testament is marked by resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, and evidently the resurrection of numerous saints around Jerusalem. It was public so as to show people this was real. It was, uh, Jesus would appear resurrected in front of 500 others so that it was not just a ragtag few people. This was a public thing. Jesus is no longer trying to, trying to quiet people about his miracles. He's now visibly resurrected, showing up to people, showing up behind locked doors, by the way, in the case of his disciples, and other people are resurrected too. Now, the text doesn't say what happens to these people afterwards. They could have gone back to their tombs. They could have Elijah style, you know, been swept up to heaven. Uh, it doesn't say that they ascended. That's something that's prophetically significant to Jesus's ministry, and it also sets the stage for his return because he will return in the way that he ascended. So I don't, I don't believe that these resurrected saints also ascended. The text doesn't say, but they're not here today. <laughs> so they weren't immortal, which means they had two funerals each, kind of like Lazarus. Everybody who was resurrected throughout biblical history eventually died again anyway because the true resurrection takes place in heaven forevermore and is permanent. This, these resurrections were signs to coincide with the resurrection of Jesus. When the centurion and those who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly this man was the son of God. Um, I know that I was knocking on the movie, The Greatest Story Ever Told. John Wayne has one line in that movie and it's this one. According to the IMDb trivia thing, which I know that I'm kind of OCD, I like to exposit my movies too. <laughs> I got to know everything about their backgrounds. Uh, according to the IMDb thing, if that's true, John Wayne had to do two takes on that. One was truly this man is the son of God. And then the director pled with him to do it with more passion. And so he added on a line to this text, ah, truly this man was the son of God. And that was it. That way they could put John Wayne's name as like, <laughs> as like a headliner for the whole movie when really he was just playing this centurion. So the centurion sees this, uh, you know, the one, the one who would inspire this, this little cameo for John Wayne 
saw the signs and there is saved. We also know that we've got women who have been a part of the crowd all the while. Mary, uh, Mary from Magdala, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and Mary uh, and the mother of Zebedee's um, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, right? Uh, uh, so these women are going to play a pivotal role on resurrection morning. Their testimonies did not carry weight in a court of law, but they would be some of the first people to bear the good news and start reporting it to others that Jesus is resurrected. No, with all, all immense respect for, um, for Doug Wilson, that's not preaching. They were spreading the news as Jesus told them, go tell my brothers. And so the first people they go to is actually to report to Peter and John, and they run to the tomb to see what's happened. These women have been watching from a distance, but they are about to be right at the very center of all the action. Watch what takes place next as we continue through this account. This is the death of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, but there's more to come. The resurrection is next.